Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table. We discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Daryl Bach, Executive Director for Cultural Engagement at the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. And today our topic is infertility. And I have to tell you, when I became executive director at the center, I never conceived of doing a podcast on this topic. (laughs) So I'll have to tell you the story why. But first, let me introduce our guests. Uh, To my left is Sandra Glan, who I know as Sandy, so that's probably what I'm going to call her, uh, Associate Professor of Media Arts and Worship here at Dallas Seminary. And how long have you been teaching here now, Sandy? Teaching for 19 years. 19 years, okay. And then Julie Shannon Fuller, who writes a blog about all kinds of issues. And uh, what else What else are you engaged in? Are you, uh, are, are, you went to seminary here, didn't you? Or am I? I'm currently enrolled okay. and just turned in my dissertation last Last week, okay. So I will be graduating in May. Very good. So uh, this uh, dissertation on infertility and childlessness. There we go. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, let me tell the story about how this happened. About uh, well, a few years ago, when I we were first doing the podcasts, um, uh, Sandy got up and did a chapel on this topic. And you know, it's it's one of those things for guys. You know, we it's not something we. Uh, think too much about perhaps unless we're married and in the mm-hmm. situation. And so I made a mental note saying, well, this is interesting and this is, this is uh, a common issue. And then uh, we met with a group of under 30 millennials um, in the fall last year and we were talking to them about all kinds of issues. And in the midst of that conversation, I asked them, what podcast would you like for us to do? Mm-hmm. And without hesitation, Hmm. Infertility came up, and then the second one was, you know, why should we come to church? And I thought, well, that's an interesting mix. <laughs> and, and so, yeah, exactly. And uh, we'll talk about that another time. That other one's also going to come down the road, I think. But anyway, and so we decided, well, um, you know, that was kind of a check the box the second time. So, yeah. So I've asked you all to come in and, and discuss this with us. And Julie, I'm going to let you start. How did, how did this issue become a key for you? Just a short version now, and then we'll go into more detail later, and I'm going to ask Sandy the same thing. Okay. Well, I was single most of my adult life and got married at age 38. Okay. And we waited. Everyone said, oh, wait a little while to mm-hmm. start trying to get pregnant. You want time together in your marriage. Mm-hmm. And we waited about a year. And then we started trying, and due to my age and everything else, we it took another year mm-hmm. for me to get pregnant, and mm. I just immediately had miscarried. Mm. And so that experience, I ended up uh, – we went through about seven years of that active infertility season and mm-hmm. then with three miscarriages. And so I worked through a lot of the pain and that burden and that questioning God, and, and then he's taken me down a path of wanting to kind of use that in ministry to help women and mm-hmm. couples and young women have a better understanding. Yeah, and actually there are actually two parts of this conversation in some ways is just the uh, experiencing a miscarriage in and of itself mm-hmm. which is traumatic enough and and many women go through that and then the whole infertility thing which is a is a smaller group but in some ways also much more 
uh, a much more I'll describe it as a gnawing experience in one way. And so, um, okay. And Sandy, how about you? What's your? So I'm the fourth of five kids. Okay. Imagined a big family. That's uh-huh. what I, I thought I was going to marry pastor and have lots of kids. And uh, when that didn't happen, and we hit the brick wall of infertility. Uh, it was really a moral, ethical, medical, financial uh, crisis, but it was mostly for me a crisis of womanhood. What does it look like to be a Christian wife? Um, and so I started doing some, I was a freelance writer, and I started doing some writing. I was part of a consumer group for infertility patients. Um, and then uh, I started taking some classes here just mm-hmm. to get theology. And so book number one ended up coming out of a class that I took here in writing, but I was writing about my infertility experience. Mm-hmm. And I was When Empty Arms Become a Heavy Burden was looking at the emotional and spiritual side. Then as I was working on my, my actual academic work here, mm-hmm. um, book two was really looking at all the different narratives uh, that that had infertility in them and how we've taken them out and made them sort of a, assuming that Bible's an unabridged text on infertility mm-hmm. instead of seeing how each of those stories function in its own narrative. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it's it's been a personal journey of 10 years of, three years of no success, seven pregnancy losses, three failed adoptions before mm. we finally had a successful adoption. Mm-hmm. Um, but also sort of a professional journey, because I never saw myself as having a career, and the Lord kept opening the doors here, right. um, closing the doors to motherhood and opening the doors to other things. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Uh, the, the, and and I imagine that that story is not unusual mm-hmm. that, if I can say it this way, you kind of stumble into infertility as opposed mm-hmm. to having the expectation. I want to start there. Uh, let's talk about expectations a little bit. And, 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 and I guess my question will s- may or may not seem odd, but I'll, I'll throw it out there anyway because I can trust you gals. <laughs> um, and that is um, how, um, how, do we, how do our expectations perhaps set us up for more pain? And what can we do to help um, help help that tension? That's a great question. <laughs> my expectations set me up greatly because I my whole life my dad was one of nine, mm-hmm. and I love that family. And I grew up just thinking I was an aunt at mm-hmm. age eleven, mm-hmm. and I thought I'll be a mom. Yeah, around kids all the time. Around kids all the time, yeah. and. Godchildren and all of that, and even through my single years, when my I remember my dad kind of sadly shaking his head one day, and I said, "What's what's mm-hmm. wrong?" And he goes, "I just wish you'd get married and have kids." Mm-hmm. You know, he meant it from a really great place. Yeah, yeah. But I was probably in my early thirties and just sitting there. Well, Dad, it'd be nice to have the guy first. You know? <laughs> there is so, a prerequisite. Yeah, you know, that's <laughs> a little important mm-hmm. detail. And and so I think I went into. I just assumed. Mm-hmm. I assumed because I think in our world, in the Western culture, we make my my opinion only. We make family in suburban America. It is it is the be all is the end all. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we help people understand completely who they are in Christ and what their identity is apart from those labels, those roles in life. I mean, we do it mm-hmm. with jobs. We mm-hmm. do it with material goods. Mm-hmm. And I think for some women, not all women, but probably the majority, 
that's what we do. We have, would you say that? We yeah, have that you, expectation. My husband and I would go to parties and people would ask him what he does and mm-hmm. they would ask me yes. how many kids I had. Yes. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, and you think about growing up, people didn't say to me, if you get married and have kids, uh-huh. it was when you get married and have kids. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And because I'm the fourth of five, people are teasing my parents constantly about, you know how you can prevent that. Yeah. So in my mind, the, the problem is uh-huh. having too many. Uh-huh. It, like it never even entered my mind that the opposite would happen. Right, right. And so some of it is, there's social pressure. There's certainly, because the church values motherhood, rightfully so, mm-hmm. uh, there tends to be an overvaluing of mm-hmm. that to where you, you hear messages like, mm-hmm. um, you know, the most important thing a woman can do is be a mother mm-hmm. or the highest calling mm-hmm. of a woman is a mother. That's just not true. The highest mm-hmm. calling is to follow Christ. Mm-hmm. And in God's varied pattern book, you know, you've got Aquilas and Priscilla's where their kids aren't mentioned. Mm-hmm. You have singles. Uh, you know, I think of uh, Lazarus' sisters, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Mary. Deborah. and uh, there are lots, lots mm-hmm. of single people in the Bible. But uh, I think since the Reformation, right, we sort of right. emptied the <laughs> emptied the monasteries of singles and kind of went the other extreme, and yeah. marriage is the be-all and all. I think yeah. we're coming back a little bit, you know, re-looking at some of that. But some of that, those messages, you know, 20 years ago when we were really being formed, 30 years ago, uh, it was my, even much more social Stronger. pressure. Yeah. yeah. And, and so, so you create this expectation of what kind of the perfect life would be for the – Average woman in the church. I actually think that we we don't do enough. I'll be interested, actually, in your opinion on this. We don't do enough to help young women think through where they are in Christ. I think the path is much easier for a man than it is for a woman in the church, if I can say it that way. And um, and even though what would be taught actually to a man and a woman in some ways would be very, very similar in terms of your walk with Christ and discipleship. Mm-hmm. We have a we have a wider path in some ways for the things we talk about with men than mm-hmm. with women. So let, uh, I'd like to probe that a little bit. If you were if you were able to design and help pastors think through how they address their their young women and for that matter the the uh, the ministers to women that churches now often have uh, what kinds of themes would you think would be important <laughs> in, this is a in, can of worms <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well we'll see what happens well i think i here's my take on a lot of churches and a lot of Evangelical Christian churches, hmm. traditionally, women are – they come in, they teach kids, they might teach other women, and I think that's been a long history. Mm-hmm. And it's been a it's, – it's not that it's a bad one, mm-hmm. but I know from younger friends, they can go out in the world and do whatever they want. Mm-hmm. They're really now in the corporate world. Right. There are less – when you say there yeah, are you're not less constantly th- thinking through the grid of I'm a woman, right? Yeah, right. I'm just a person with right. skills that I'm bringing to the job. And much they walk more in so church. in the church, you're thinking yeah. that way. Yeah. And so in the yeah. church, they walk through the doors, and and women are telling women. In my dissertation, mm-hmm. I I talk about one of the women I interviewed and how she couldn't have kids, and she was trying to find some meaning and purpose, and went to a church and offered to help out in the infertility ministry, mm-hmm. and she was told. Well, um, you didn't adopt, so that's really if you, if if you can't have kids, you need to adopt. Oh wow! So yeah. a woman telling a woman. So I think it's yeah. kind of it's not. I don't want it even to become a gender thing, like yeah. it's male against right. female. I think that we all have to be intentional mm-hmm. about learning how has God gifted uh, each one of us. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was such a big turning point in my life to go. Wow, how has mm-hmm. He gifted me? 
Mm-hmm. What am I to do here? Instead of we join together and marriage is it. Yeah. I think we. I think in the church we need to do a better job of helping people understand that. First of all, yeah. Mm. Going back to what you said about identity, I think mm. I think you're absolutely mm-hmm. right. That again, it goes back to that party. You know what? What what do people ask my husband? It's mm-hmm. what you do. Yes. Mm-hmm. And for me, it was, are you? You know, how many kids do you have? And I, I did call, he wave and go, I have some too. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> At that point, we didn't have any. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So then yeah. I'm, I'm yeah. bump. You know, do right. I tell them about our infertility? Right. Do I tell them I'm a writer? Just, you know, it becomes awkward. It was immediately. very awkward it's a for everyone. Yeah, yeah. it's a killer. killer. Yeah. 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 But I, I co-teach a course in sexual ethics here, and one of the assignments we give students is to look at masculinity slash femininity uh, curriculum that churches are mm-hmm. doing. And one of their evaluations is constantly people are defining ma- uh, femininity for women going straight to the marriage text, mm-hmm. right? And so we're not laying out uh, what is a woman's identity. We're mm-hmm. laying out what is a wife's identity. Mm-hmm. And, you know, going back to Genesis, um, and, you know, sometimes reading the church fathers can mess you up a little bit about on this, right? Because right. they, some of them thought that women weren't made in the image of God, but mm-hmm. that they were made in the sort of in the secondary image if they're married. And, and so we're, we need to begin by teaching women, you are made in the image of God. Mm-hmm. You are yes. made as a co-ruler, a co-creator, a, a co-companion. Not just, just in Genesis 1 at the start. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. And a lot of us are, are warning about the dangers of feminism, mm-hmm. warning about, you know, devaluing valuing motherhood, mm-hmm. but you know what we're against, mm-hmm. but we're not actually giving a foundation of who actually are you. Mm-hmm. And a goal for a woman is not to be married, it's not to have kids, it's to be Christ-like, it's to mm-hmm. have the fruit of the Spirit, and it might manifest itself in marriage, mm-hmm. but it also might manifest itself in the marketplace, mm-hmm. or it might do both. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we you just sort of need to broaden our, our idea that we've just devalued motherhood and we, we have done that, but mm-hmm. there's also a lot of other things we've devalued that we need to kind of relook at. And you put that next mm-hmm. to the church's kind of awkwardness also with the whole idea of singleness right. uh, and, yes. and that combination. It's the same plus. route, really. It is, yeah. And, and so you're, you're locked in. And of course, the interesting thing about Genesis 1 is, is that, you know, that, that text is, I think, clear that that men and women are both made in the image of God. In fact, the whole structure of the creation story, I like to tell people just to have some fun, that the creation story, actually the the high point is when the woman's created, you know, because it finishes the sequence. It completes, yeah. it completes the sequence, and, and there's something missing until she's brought onto the stage. And uh, there are other elements of the way that works, too. The, the, the whole role that the woman is said to have as being a helper, which we tend to interpret in a very mm, soft yeah. kind yeah. of Hamburger way. Hamburger helper, exactly. plumber's helper. Exactly. Yeah. It is actually a very strong word. It's yes. a word that's used to describe what yes. God does. And so, so it, it's, it's not this um, kind of you know 98-pound weakling uh, right. uh, look, but it's actually – it really does complete the puzzle. And, and they were designed to function together as a team that complemented one another with the recognition they needed one another in order to do that. And, and when you do that, of course, that puts pressure 
on on building towards the family, et cetera. But but the point is that that is design is is generic. It's not just about right. families. It's about how right. God has made the creation and how He's made men and women, and they're supposed to function alongside each other. So there's a huge theological base here that we're talking about. I saw a piece okay. of research on boards that came out after the the whole Wall Street scandal. And the question was posed, okay, these were all male boards that were unethical. What would happen if you had all female boards? <laughs> Research said just as unethical. Uh-huh. The more ethical boards had men and women mm-hmm. working together. Mm-hmm. And again, I think it goes back to Genesis. In some mysterious way, it's not just marriage. It's we were made to, to be partnering together as we're having dominion. Yeah, what I, have, so. what I find fascinating, and, and uh, I, I think I've become more sensitive to this in the last eight, ten years. But um, we recently did a chapel, as we often do, and I and I purposely put um, our, one of our New Testament uh, faculty members, who's, who's female, on the team. We were we were discussing the infancy material, and you know, and so you know, you, mm-hmm. there there's standard conversations you have about Jesus's birth, and you know, there's the census, and the, you know, what life's like in the first century, and just mm-hmm. all kinds of variety of things that you normally go through to try and paint the backdrop. And we're about halfway through this chapel, about 30 minutes, and, and Terry Moore, who, was, who I had asked to do it, spoke up and said, well, um, let me tell you a little bit about childbirth in the Greco-Roman <laughs> world. You know, and I'm sitting here going – and the moment she, the moment she wow. went there, I went, you know, I don't know how many times I've gone through this passage. I don't know how many details of everyday life I've thought about. I have at least thought about, you know, how old was this gal when this was all going on in the context of the culture, which shocks people because she's a very young teenager in all likelihood. And so I'm telling people, you know, she's in the seventh or eighth grade, which blows people away to start off with. But the one thing I had not thought about to probe at all was how childbirth works. And she had done – so she spent about four or five minutes in this chapel talking about what it was like to be a woman in the ancient world getting ready to bear your first child. And, um, you know, an angle I would yeah. – for lack of a better – I would have been completely – I was <laughs> completely oblivious. Yeah, it yeah, was yeah, not sure. on my yeah. radar. I hadn't thought yeah. about it. You know, it, it, was, it wasn't a place I very naturally go, obviously. And so <laughs> – and I was so grateful that she was there because it added, a, you know, a whole nother mm-hmm. important dimension to, to the story. And because of how God made her, she had sensitivities that naturally went there that uh, – you know, uh, I'm not going there unless someone taps you on the shoulder and <laughs> right. say, "Hey," <laughs> you know, and so. But you asked, "What can the church do? What can we yes. tell pastors?" Yeah. That's a great example of yes. looking at everyone in your congregation and their gifts, mm-hmm. and what voices are we not hearing, mm-hmm. and where can we plug in some of these uh, infertility patients who mm-hmm. could do great work on a missions board or great work on a you know whatever, <laughs> instead of instead of just assuming there are certain roles that those women can fill or or men too. I mean, this is a crisis for men is just more of a quieter yes. crisis. For yeah, I think that's true. And, and uh, you know, it, it is it, – It's like I say, it's an area that impacts people. But I think one of the reasons – in fact, it's one of the rationales for doing the podcast is, is that unless you have gone through it or have been very close to someone who's gone through it, you don't know what it is to go through it. No. I mean, it's just um, – and, and so 
you know, to make people aware of this being a, often a significant uh, battle in people's mm -hmm. lives in terms of how they see themselves and what they're about is an important thing to, to realize. Okay, well, I want to turn our attention a little bit. We've kind of – and we'll come back to this because I think on the other side there's still more to say. Um, but I'd like to dive into kind of the story, and this is going to be a hard conversation in some ways because I'm going to ask kind of to walk us through the the process of what this is like to go through. And, uh, and uh, Julie, we probably have time just for your story on the first half, and then on the other end of the break we'll pick up Sandy's story. So so let's talk about – so you you came from this huge family, right, and you were expecting this to happen, and you had timed it, okay, we've got our time for us. You know, yes. It sounds like a title of a, of a soap opera. Us. A I think it's a, for us. a song, yes. I'll remember the movie in a minute. That's right. Yeah. Love story. Romeo and, uh, and Juliet. Romeo and Juliet, yeah, exactly a time for right. us. Exactly yes. right. So okay, yes. and you say, okay, our time's up. And yeah. and, and then you, you dive in. And, and what I'm hearing, what I've already heard that, that gets grabs my attention immediately is, is that there were there are multiple attempts and multiple disappointments. Mm -hmm. It's uh, – I'm trying to think of how to succinctly describe. Yeah. Because I didn't even realize I was infertile. Mm -hmm. And so I think part of the problem is even recognizing mm -hmm. whatever age you are, that that's where you are. Yeah. And so, again, I started researching, you know, the whole Google yeah. it and, yeah. and, and talking to friends and mm – -hmm. And then my age, and I started seeing things about age, and uh -huh. I had never paid attention. Nobody told me. Yeah. I mean, you know, you yeah. hear, well, it's yeah. harder, but you don't really hear it. Right, right. I'm very passionate now about young women understanding and, and women who are in their early 30s uh -huh. and getting married. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty real with them uh -huh. about what they should do and not do, and don't listen to doctors telling you to be patient and wait. Right, right. Here's okay. some basic things. Uh, please do this because yeah. if I knew then what I know now, I would have done it totally different. I mean, and you interesting might be the same way, but you know, I had a I had a friend who said to me, she had a friend who said, I don't understand. This has taken over your life. Mm -hmm. She said, Of course it has. I get up in the morning and I have to take my temperature before I get out of bed, and mm -hmm. I have to write it on my little chart, and then I get up and I have to go in the bathroom and I have to give myself a shot, mm -hmm. and then I have to go in and make my breakfast, and it's a specific breakfast. I have to be very and so it's just like this whole daily. There's a regimen attached. Yeah. There is, yeah. and when you're in the middle of it, and yeah. when you recognize it, and you start going to doctors, and it's very confusing, and and there's not someone that's kind of I want to maybe be that voice of, here are just some basic things to look at. Mm -hmm. Because you have doctors saying, oh, you need to do this test, this test. The financial, none of ours was covered by insurance. Oh, wow. And so then you have that whole mm -hmm. piece of it, the emotional, the physical, and then depending on what level you're in and what treatments and what surgeries and all of that, then you have hormonal things going on. And a lot of a lot of times, people don't even know you're in the midst of it. Mm -hmm. You have to discover it, mm -hmm. and then everything that you go through is so embarrassing and humiliating. Mm -hmm. The tests for the men, the tests for the women, awful, mm -hmm. humiliating. Mm -hmm. I was so naive. I have no pride left mm -hmm. for for things like that because you just get used to it. But you have to discover all of these things, and you have to kind of do it on your own and with your doctor. Mm -hmm. So. It's really important for medical team, and that's why I'm passionate about the church needs to talk about it more so that people feel 
people get isolated. We live in little silos in the midst of this pain. Mm -hmm. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on The Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. And Sandy, um, we've heard at least a piece of Julie's story. What about yours? Yeah, it probably it probably wouldn't hurt to back up and define infertility. Okay, so it's defined as uh, trying for uh, a year without in, uh, protected intercourse, okay, without success. But it also includes uh, pregnancy loss, the inability mm. to carry to term. Okay, and it affects about uh, the studies vary, but between about. 12% mm-hmm. mm-hmm. 12% of couples who are uh, in their childbearing years. Okay. So, um, you know, you look at 10 couples and at least right. one of them is, is right. going through it. And, and after, every, after on every 30, row, on every row of your church, yeah, every there's, row, a, there's probably, probably somebody, like one person. Yeah. And yeah. after 35, that oh, yeah, yeah, they yeah, narrow that, that down to six to months. Six months yeah. uh-huh. Not a year of trying. Uh-huh. Yeah. So pretty yeah. much there's a big... And I take it the Time the curve or, in some ways also goes up because the longer aging, you wait, the sure. the, the yes, higher sure. the percentage goes. Yeah, okay. and Sorry. about a, a, a huge percentage of people who seek medical treatment go on to conceive. It's mm-hmm. much lower mm-hmm. for couples who don't. And one of the first ethical struggles is you read those stories about women in the Bible who mm-hmm. conceived. Right. You know, God closed their womb, then he opened them. So for Christians, often there's an initial – I talked to somebody this week. The initial question is, is it okay to even go to the doctor for this? Yeah. Or am I taking things into my own hands? Yeah. And so my usual answer to that is, would you go to the doctor if you had cancer? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. there are medical – 90% of the time, there's a, a findable medical reason. Yeah. Just to find out. Just to find out. Yeah. 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 Uh, And just to just to know because you should know that anyway. I mean, there's something causing it. Right. You might need to know that you know there might be a thyroid problem you need to know about whatever. Anyway, we had to work through some of that too, and um, all all the way up through is it okay to do in vitro and when does life begin and how do you manage your treatment? So that that's sort of the ethical journey that Mm -hmm. we were on. Um, you know, and I mentioned sort of the identity journey of what does it mean to be a woman and do I have a life and is it okay to have build a career and if I start taking classes to build a career, does that mean I'm devaluing motherhood? All of those questions. Um, but in terms of, of the actual medical experience, um, I, was, I was pretty chill for the first couple of years and it was my doctor who said, you know, you've actually exceeded the definition. Mm-hmm. I said, I'm not infertile, I'm just having trouble getting pregnant. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, What's the difference? Um, but at the time, to me, there was a big difference. Like, I wasn't going to obsess like those women right, do, right? right. And so, um, so we started in on treatment, and you know, it's love by the calendar, which is a total violation of your privacy. Mm-hmm. And the the statistics show it really does wreck your love life mm-hmm. because you're thinking about this thing, mm-hmm. and um, 
you ha- you're constantly trying to decide who do I tell what. Hmm. And I, you know, I remember going back to work one day after being at the doctor, and somebody said, "So what did the doctor do to you today?" I said, "Could you rephrase that? Or yeah. How you doing today?" Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, it's just so awkward um, and awful. And um, there, and then there's also the the marital crisis is typically the husbands experience everything the wives do, but later. Mm-hmm. And uh, especially with the internet now, we can find support groups. We're talking about infertility. We're talking about adoption sooner than our husbands are typically. So you can find yourselves on unparalleled journeys in mm-hmm. terms of how much you've worked through it. Mm-hmm. Since it's during your childbearing years. What you're telling me is guys are emotionally a little behind the women. Actually, that's not what I'm saying. Uh, what I'm saying uh. is they're informationally behind. Okay. So they because they're not. They in process this, it slower. So they they yeah. haven't even thought about adoption yeah. yet. Because but you're already talking to your friends in the support group who are thinking about it. Interesting. So you might be you might get ahead of each. You know, the wives typically get ahead of their husbands. The other thing that happens is that wives who are maybe more global feel like they need to process it all the time because it's a huge grief. Right. And the husbands can just, their eyes glaze over going, I want my wife back. So typically people say the greatest loss for her is the inability to have a child. Uh And the greatest loss for him is the loss of his happy wife. Hmm. So he'll do anything to get her back. He'll sacrifice, but he'll say things like, I'm willing to not have children if that's what it takes, which she can hear as... See, I knew you weren't committed. Yeah. Right? And so you're yeah. trying to love, but you're just missing it. Completely normal. Yeah. But if you don't know that, you can really, couples might think I married the wrong person or, you know, this is a horrible crisis. The other thing that happens is that it happens typically uh, in the younger or earlier years of your marriage. Mm-hmm. And for most couples, it's the first grief they've been through together Mm -hmm. and the first time they really find themselves on different pages. Mm -hmm. And so it can be very isolating as well. Mm -hmm. This person I was close to and, you know, we were always on the same page about, we are not on the same page about this. Emotionally, spiritually, we're just at different places. So that adds to the grief in addition to not being able to have a child is that relational angst of I'm going through this and I'm kind of going through it alone, even if he's super supportive. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's where I encourage churches to have support groups, not therapist-led support groups, just groups where people can get together and know that typically the wives will get together more often than the husbands. Interesting. So we really are pointing out some layers to this. I mean, there's the – there's a – there's an identity layer. There's yeah. a medical <laughs> regimen layer. Expensive, there, yeah. There, there's the relational layer mm-hmm. of what this means for your marriage. And we've touched on the relations that are happening within the marriage, but it also produces, and we've suggested this already, mm-hmm. some interesting pressures with regard to how you're relating to your friends. Um, another thing that I think it, it might be interesting to, uh, to explore a little bit is I imagine this gets tricky for your friends who are having children or raising <laughs> survivor children. guilt that's yes. right okay Absolutely. and and, and mm-hmm. so their their life is flowing along along the path of the expectations that's where we started mm-hmm. that you had and it's and it's you know traveling down that highway pretty nicely and lo and behold you know here you are back back at the gas station <laughs> <laughs> you know so if i don't yeah. go to a baby shower right. it might be because i don't want to take the focus off the person being honored right. and people might think i'm feeling sorry for myself right right i, I mean constantly those social issues of I don't want to go to a shower and hear your term your time is coming right either right I just right. don't want it to be about me right right um, or their child may be a grief trigger to yeah me, which right? which raises a whole nother thing that's actually probably its own complete podcast which is how <laughs> often 
people around people in a situation will try and communicate something that's actually said out of empathy and out of mm. concern and compassion, but it actually lands as a thud. Yeah, <laughs> and, <laughs> there are lots of those. You know, yeah. and, 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 it, and, it, and, and so it totally fails to accomplish what it's seeking to accomplish just because the, the distance between what the person is experiencing and what their friend thinks they need is so great. Mm. Yeah. So then it falls on the grieving person to try to instruct and you just and make may them have feel the energy. better. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. well, we can see there are many dimensions to this. Anything, anything in this relational area that we've kind of uh, failed to mention? I have one other major topic that I kind of know I want to go through. Just, just real quick, people need to be willing to sit with people in that really awkward place. Mm-hmm. It's okay yeah. to not have an answer. It's okay. It's much better to just sit and be present than say weep with those weep, weep. Uh, pull yeah. out your, don't pull out your Bible and start quoting scripture at uh-huh. the appropriate time. There's a time for that, but right. but I had that happen when I was raw and uh-huh. I, I just got mad at God. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so there are just there are different ways. I actually am really passionate. I do workshops on equipping communities mm-hmm. how to walk well with people because mm-hmm. I feel like they don't nobody I don't think means to inflict harm and pain and, right exactly and it's the people closest to us that really are the ones who, who do that do it yeah, yeah. without yeah. meaning to yeah well like I said it can be well-intentioned yeah. but it but it ends yes. up landing in the exact yes. opposite space and so well here's here's another dimension of this that, that you all have already alluded to and I think and I, I'm going to take a shot at this it may end up being the most painful part of the journey and that is what we might call the initial seeming success that doesn't work out. So the the process of miscarriage and and that reversal of emotion. Um, I think you've both mentioned that you both went through this. So um, so um, Julia, I'll let you start. It's been the most painful part of the trip. Yes. Yes. In fact, my my third pregnancy lasted till the end of the first trimester, and so that everybody says when you can get there. And I was doing shots twice a day and mm-hmm. doing all kinds of things, and really working hard to make this work. And mm-hmm. we knew it was our last shot based on my age and the amount of time we'd put into it and all of that. Uh-huh. And it was really painful because we went in, we'd seen the heartbeat. We went in expecting to hear the heartbeat, and we had a less than sensitive uh, sonographer who basically did the sonogram and then immediately just started packing everything up and said, you need to go to the doctor's office and sit and wait. And we're like, what? Well, what? We want to hear the heartbeat. She goes, there's no heartbeat. It's no longer a vital um, pregnancy. Wow. And we just were devastated because it was just so and and that's another yes and that's another thing you know the medical personnel they can't cry with everybody and they can't but there's a there's a fine line (laughs) (laughs) and so that was the biggest devastation of that was i am not going to be a mom yeah sure and what does that look like in my life yeah what do i do now who does that who am i yeah and one of the biggest questions that I think people ask when when they're in the middle of it, and then in my case when they are realize they're going to be childless, uh-huh. uh, am I not blessed by God? Yeah. So because you, back to the Old Testament, right. it's and then God blessed them and opened their womb, and people try to carry that forward to right. our New Testament living. Yeah. So the so the hill becomes a wall, and it's not going to get scaled. Yes. Correct, and, and and it's a lifetime. I, right, we were right. just discussing now. We're now going through seasons of, 
friends who have they're starting to have if they had kids young and their kids are having kids young their their grandparents mm-hmm. and i found a whole new layer of pain uh-huh. of, oh <laughs> yeah. oh i don't get that either yeah yeah mm-hmm. so it's it's a lifelong it's just one of those thorns in the flesh mm-hmm. for life that you have to work through and make your peace with god and then embrace mm-hmm. Your purpose and, and your it's different in your situation than it is for some. I've you know I've had a daughter who's had a miscarriage, and you know I, mm-hmm. I know what that experience can be like. I've had close friends who've had miscarriages, but there's always the the expectation but, on the other end that if we yeah, continue, we'll, we'll again, get yeah. to have a child. And mm-hmm. so, but so but in this context, I, it, it adds to the uncertainty and adds to the pain in mm-hmm. in in two ways: the loss. But then the now the really more nagging question. I managed it, it ups the ante to a certain extent. For me, I was yes. a younger patient, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. when I we were getting close to the end mm-hmm. of treatment, thinking this isn't working, mm-hmm. and then I got pregnant. Mm-hmm. So then for us, it was like that proverbial carrot of yeah. do stop yes. now. Yeah, you know. So seven pregnancy losses later, we started. We're like, yeah, we stop now. Uh-huh. But it kept us in the game for years. Yeah. Uh, Thinking, well, gosh, if I got pregnant, then you know this has got to work. And you know, it turned out to be an, an immune system problem, so mm-hmm. my body attacked the embryo. But we didn't know that at the time. Right. We didn't know yeah. what was causing it. Huh. And so, yeah, and uh, yeah, thinking we're almost done at three years, and then that extending into seven years yeah. because I kept conceiving. Mm. Wow. So, and, and uh, so, how do you how do you get on the other end of that? I mean, or do you? Oh, absolutely, okay. absolutely, and that's I think. And and after I, I interviewed several women about their who've who've now had years of living and being childless, and and when I say childless, I want to clarify that mm-hmm. um, it is not less than as a person. Mm-hmm. It is that I'm missing the child. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of women who choose to not have children. They call themselves child free. Mm-hmm. And they kind of push back against the less. Uh-huh. They don't want to be thought of as a less than. Right. And that's not what I mean when I say I'm childless. Uh-huh. I'm meaning I will never fill that little spot. I mean, right. that's just what I'm going to live right. in. But I think really, truly learning your identity, learning who God created you to be, aside from any other role, just being in Christ, and then having community, finding supportive community around you, finding ways to serve, we need to invite people in. We need to recognize women's giftedness. Meaningful work. And yeah. say, come in and, and work alongside us, not just in the nursery. Right. And especially right. not in the nursery if you can't have children. Right. But I think there it is. It, it is and it's a different process. It is a lengthy grieving process for mm-hmm. and with any grief, it's different for everyone. Yeah. That's the other thing. You can't tell you can't have an expectation of people to be over. Mm-hmm. And even those women who have kids after a miscarriage, mm-hmm. some of them, they still are going to grieve that miscarriage. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and and so I guess you know one of the things that I guess comes up sometimes is to say, well, is is there? It's a void, um, at least for some people. And so, how do you do you fill it? I mean, you know, our nieces and nephews' mm-hmm. gifts sure. and yeah. that kind yeah. of thing. Change Mother's Day to Mothering Day. Yeah. Honor everybody who's mentoring. Yeah. Um, Mentoring's a big mentoring's one. Mentoring's a big one. Uh-huh. Um, you know, Mother's Day is a Hallmark holiday. The church doesn't right. have to do Hallmark. We can make our own. And yeah. mothering, uh, you know, when you look at scripture, that 
that's what we were made to do. We're supposed to be reproducing. Yes. Yeah. And so to honor everyone who's doing that yeah. um, is also something that is a, is a comfort. Yeah, I, I think I think this is an underestimated feature of the conversation because uh, I know, at least in, in our family, in certain situations, the aunts and the uncles are able to do things with yeah, kids yes. that mothers and dads yes. can't. Yes, absolutely. And so they're always cooler. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. We are. <laughs> and, and, and so, so you know, so so that can be a very important role. It's not the same thing as having your own, but it is. But it is a, it is an extended family. I mean, right. and it needs to be right. the viewed body, that the body way. Body of Christ, where there, we ended up adopting uh, mm-hmm. somebody who didn't have parents. Mm-hmm. We were the parents of the groom on mm-hmm. his wedding day. Mm-hmm. Um, so, in the body of Christ, that you know, yes. the kids without parents have parents, and parents without children have children. Um, I, I also want to say that something that was profoundly helpful for me was learning to pray the lament psalms. Hmm. And you know, in America, we're in right, out right, upright, down right, happy all the time. Uh-huh. <laughs> and you know, but that's the most common form of prayer, mm-hmm. as you know, in the in the psalms is a lament. And um, I, in my early training as a Christian, was taught you don't ask God questions, but the psalms are full of questions. <laughs> right. I was taught that you don't, you know, express outrage. Mm-hmm. And you know, I had to learn the difference between why and why. Uh-huh. Right. Um, right. But that I have permission to do that. That God actually gives me guides. Hey, you're not, you're not actually ranting loudly enough. Let me give you some guides. You know, was yeah. very free. There have been a few people who've gone down this <laughs> yeah, exactly, road before. Yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah. But also the recognition as I matured to that everybody has unfulfilled longings. Mm-hmm. Everybody does. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so. To grieve them and to recognize them, but to also recognize my own mother, who had five children, always wanted to go back to college. Hmm. I had ended up adopting one child and got a PhD, mm-hmm. and in some ways I'm living out her dream, and mm-hmm. in some ways she lived, you know, lived out mine. And uh-huh. so, just the recognition that pain is pain is pain. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not running the suffering Olympics. Mm-hmm. We can. We can empathize with each other, even if if you're a mother whose child just spit up on you for the 14th time, and you're wearing a silk blouse. Mm-hmm. You know, I can empathize with that mother instead yeah. of saying, "Well, it must be nice because you could have kids." <laughs> yeah, recognizing mm-hmm. the maturity says everybody has stuff. Yeah, uh, and to again to weep with those who weep, not to one up them, not to quote Bible to them, not to tell them to you know cheer up. So we've gone through, uh, you know, we've gone through these various levels. We've talked about identity. We've talked about the regimen. We've talked about the relational. We've talked about the pain of the losses. And there's one other element that I think needs to be brought up, and that is um, the financial impact of what we're talking about, which obviously ends up um, mm-hmm. impacting everything that's going on. Uh, and I imagine also impacts the d- dynamics between the couple. You've already talked about the dynamics just mm-hmm. relationally, but yeah, the money but, comes into that. The money yes, comes into that sure. big time because it ends up uh, people have got to decide the costs. And this is not to pursue this and try and get over it can be mm-hmm. very expensive, right? Absolutely. Is. Yes. Is. <laughs> yes, I, is. I ended up, I think I went to four specialists and had I don't know how many surgeries and, you know, just trying to do things that might help things and, mm-hmm. and the medications and the testing and the blood work and it all adds up. Mm-hmm. And I do know people who are going through now and in the last few years, insurance has really changed mm-hmm. a little as far as what's covered, but it still is a pretty big 
And I because you said you weren't initially covered yeah. for some of what you were doing. We weren't covered for any of it. It's yeah, wow. Collective. And okay. so we ended up, and I we never did IVF. Mm-hmm. We did mm-hmm. all the way up to, mm-hmm. and so in vitro, I think now is at about ten thousand dollars a try. Mm-hmm. And I'm gonna say I know a lot of people who've had to try that two and three. In more times, mm-hmm. so it is very costly, and that adds a whole. You know, they say that right. you know financial is the biggest fight couples have, and yeah. so that yeah. puts that whole emphasis on right. the money, which is sad, mm-hmm. but it does because mm-hmm. you right. can. And what I think that the emotional and the financial mm-hmm. get caught up mm-hmm. because earlier when you said I'm not going to be one of those women, and I laughed because you find yourself. I had a good good close person who said draw your line in the sand early mm-hmm. you two sit together and decide where are you drawing your financial line in the sand because mm-hmm. once you get caught up in the emotions of it and the tests and the loss you're going to want to just put money and money money and borrow money and she said that will harm your marriage and that was one of the best pieces of advice i got mm-hmm. do you agree i mean well yes you know in, in, in our situation where we were ready to quit and then there's a yeah. miscarriage Yes, we had to reevaluate that money yes. question. Yes. Of gosh, are we almost have we almost got it fixed? Are we almost there? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, it's it's just complicated. It yeah. is. But I, but, it but is. you're right. A, a real source of tension can be, uh, I'm willing to go this far mm-hmm. and pay this much. Uh, this is my whole life. This is you know a big part of my identity. And you know over here you can be going. Eh, mm-hmm. I'm not willing to pay that much because you know that's going to destroy our finances. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one other area where you're just not really on the same page and having to work through. I just that. thought of another question. We're running short on time, so we're going to have to handle this one quickly. But what happens? Um, wh- how, well, I'll ask it this way: How does the blame game work? Okay, you know what I'm asking. Yep. Um, yep. Uh, you know, who's the infertility? Who, who's the, where's the problem? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. how, how does that work in all this? Uh, the best thing probably my husband ever said to me was, um, "I didn't marry you for your ability to have mm-hmm. children, hmm. um, and this is our problem. And I'm going to the doctor with you, and this is not your problem." That was hmm. such a healing thing hmm. for him to say. Yeah, I know too. I, my husband was very supportive in that in that manner as well. I also mm-hmm. know that in my own head. I was constantly because I'm the one that had the problems. Mm-hmm. So I had this constant little voice saying, "Well, you know, you've got this wrong, this wrong, and now you found out about this." Mm-hmm. And so, it's really kind of your fault. What about the feeling of letdown that com- mm-hmm. that comes with that? In other words, that if if you're the one who's discovered to have the problem, yeah. the feeling is, "I've just robbed someone oh, that yeah. I love." Exactly. Oh, sure. Yeah. Exactly. I said to my husband, "Like, yeah. you you should find somebody who can give you children." Yeah. He's like. That's nuts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But still, I did. That's actually I mean, probably theologically and, yeah, accurate. Yeah, exactly. But, but uh, exactly. But I mean, I yeah. still think that. Yeah. I still, as as we get Christmas cards, that people have our age have seventeen people in the picture because they got their four kids and their yeah. kids are starting to get married and have right. kids. And you know, I'm looking at that, thinking I I have robbed him of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where I'm really thankful I married somebody who believes in the sovereignty of God. Well, we're, we're really tight for time. I'm going to try to throw out one question, but it's <laughs> got to be answered fairly crisply, and it's this. Uh, you know, you've heard what we've said. What one other piece of advice would you give to the church in general as they think about this area? What, what, is there anything that we haven't covered or missed that we should say, or, is, or what can be done? You can, that's a wide open Don't question. leave out the husbands in a miscarriage okay. um, and, infer, and infertility as well. Mm-hmm. Male infertility um, is, is devastating mm-hmm. on the men. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but but it's devastating for them to watch their wives hurt too. Mm-hmm. Invite. Uh, couples to be involved mm-hmm. in in areas be think out of the box mm-hmm. invite them to mentor other kids invite them to be part of families and offer grace when they may so you're talking them. about taking the couple that's gone through this and make sure that they are in, in, or in it engaged in, in the family okay. in the church mm-hmm. yes. okay okay mm-hmm. well this has been uh, a fascinating journey I, I I have to say and honestly when I got up this morning we were thinking about the podcast I was sitting here going well this is something I know next to nothing about but mm-hmm. I know I should know far more about it than than I do and uh, and so I really appreciate you taking the time to come in and talk us through your story and the advice that you have my hope would be that pastors who listen to this in particular and people who minister to women uh, directly as well, and pastors of men for that yeah, matter, yes. that they all would take this seriously because I think this does produce a terrific amount of, of pain and potential tension in a marriage, and knowing something about it is actually a pretty important pastoral quality, and the more sensitive the church can be, the better off. So thank you all for coming thank in. Thank you for having the conversation yeah. Yeah, about it. Glad to do it. Mm-hmm. And we hope that you've enjoyed your time here with us at the table. We hope to see you again soon. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well.